All right, hello everyone. Welcome to week four of IMC 600. You are now more than halfway through this course, so it's kind of all downhill from here, and I don't mean that in the negative sense. Uh, these next two chapters are probably my favorites in this book, and I realize that sounds kind of lame to have a favorite textbook chapter, but what are you going to do? So, And I like these chapters because they've got a lot of great things for you to consider in your own campaigns, and they lend themselves to some really good discussion. I particularly enjoy this chapter because in my marketing career, I've actually worked on brand development and rebranding, and I'll get into that a little bit at the end of this talk. Um, on that note, uh, speaking of this talk, I will say that this podcast is probably going to be a little bit shorter, uh, just because this week we're having our live chat with my friend Tim, and as I've said before, Tim is the man. And as far as I'm concerned, he's the expert, and uh, I think you guys are going to learn a lot from him in our talk. So, technically speaking, a brand is a name, symbol, term, or design assigned to a product or service. But I like to take it a bit further than the textbook definition, because to me, branding is so much more. Branding is the overall image of a company. It's the overall voice of the company. It's that first feeling you, uh, you get when you think of a company or its products. But above all that, uh, to me, branding is trust. The hallmark of good branding is when a company's product or service becomes a no-brainer for the consumer. Think of uh, Kleenex. I guarantee that uh, nine times out of ten when you sneeze, you ask someone to hand you a Kleenex. You don't say, hey, can I have a tissue? You probably say, hand me a Kleenex, and you don't even think that you're saying Kleenex. Uh, that brand name. Or you can think about it like uh, you're driving down the highway and uh, off in the distance you see those golden arches and you know exactly that that is a McDonald's. To get to that point is something that oftentimes takes a lot of time. And marketing, um, employing good strategy, can expedite that uh, so long as your product or service is solid. Making terrible-tasting burgers that took forever to prepare d didn't get McDonald's to where it is today. It was decent food served quickly at convenient locations. The slogan, nothing runs like a deer, didn't happen because John Deere manufactured tractors and equipment that broke down all the time. Uh, these two companies even have colors that immediately make you think of them when you see them. McDonald's, it's red and gold, and... Uh, John Deere, it's green and gold, or green and yellow. Um, one of the most effective ads that I've ever seen was when I was in middle school in a thinking skills class. And it, it was a magazine ad. And uh, the teacher put up the ad on the overhead projector, and I realize I'm dating myself by saying overhead projector. I'm not sure that some of you might know what that is. But um, they put it on the screen. And all this ad was, it was just a picture of a McDonald's straw, and in the very bottom left-hand corner, there was a small golden, you know, M, the golden arches, but the predominant feature of that ad was the McDonald's straw with one side with the yellow stripe and the other side with the red stripe, and with the teacher asks, what straw is that, and we all, you know, all, you know, all of us 13-year-olds chimed in and said, uh, it, it was McDonald's, and, you know, we were right. Um, it was a pretty powerful ad because it proved the brand recognition that McDonald's has, 
even with uh, an accoutrement to enjoying a fine meal at its establishment, just the straw. Um, and the, the advertising campaign, you know, they hope that you would think about the straw and think about the last time you were at McDonald's and used a straw and what, you, what beverage you enjoyed, maybe what you were eating uh, when you were using that straw as well, and uh, that you maybe get a little hungry and want to go to McDonald's. As strategic marketers, I'd argue that we should always be working to make our product or service the brand name in its specific category. There are advantages to branding, and they include uh, easy product identification, comparison shopping, shopping efficiency, risk reduction, product acceptance, enhanced self-image, and product loyalty. Strong branding can make your distribution easier. It can make it a hell of a lot easier. If you've got that really great brand, um, stores are going to come to you because they're going to want your products. They're going to want that thing with your name on it lining their shelves because that's going to uh, translate to increased sales and uh, increased profit for their bottom line. Depending where you find yourselves in your careers, you may be making a decision about carrying the generics or the store brand. As many stores show, there are benefits to doing that. Uh, first and foremost, it, increase, it increases the depth and breadth of product mixes and lines. Uh, you actually see this a lot in grocery stores and department stores. Um, just to harp on the grocery stores, um, and I know I've brought this up before, uh, but uh, Wegmans, they have their, um, their brand of uh, food and products. And um, I think, uh, and I might be jumping ahead, no, I'm not jumping ahead here. Um, I'll actually skip ahead right now. Um, there are advantages with this, and that's, like I said, increased, or like I was hinting at, increased profit, uh, less competition, total control over the products, and merchant loyalty. So before I was stumbling there, uh, what I was getting at is Wegmans is the king of merchant loyalty, uh, at least in my opinion. I think that uh, if you're a Wegmans shopper, um, if you had the expensive brand of whatever it is um, against the Wegmans brand, I think most people choose the Wegmans brand. And it's kind of a no-brainer. You just know that it's going to be quality. Um, if it's a new product and it's a Wegmans product, you don't, you, know, you don't feel that there's a lot of risk with it. You accept it a little bit quick, uh, a little more quickly. And uh, Wegmans has just done a phenomenal job of all this. So let's just touch on individual versus family branding. Individual branding occurs when a firm decides to give each of its products a different name. Depending on the size of your firm, this can require a Herculean amount of work, coordination, and resources. I know the book cited this uh, company in this section, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention Procter & Gamble since one of our uh, journalism school alumni is one of the higher-ups. Uh, her name's Deb Henrietta. She actually spoke at my uh, graduation, and uh, when she got out of college, one of her first jo or her first job with Procter and Gamble was the brand assistant for Bold Laundry Detergent. So, um, family branding occurs when you use the same name or part of the brand name on every product. That's the Wegman's example that I point to. There's always that big giant W on on their brands. Um, as marketers, there's other types that you can employ as well, like co-branding, and that's working with another established brand. Uh, you see this a lot in food. Um, you also see it, and I just kind of was looking, uh, my kitchen's in the next room, and I just kind of looked quickly. 
Um, I've seen it with uh, the dishwasher detergent that we use, Cascade, and it always the one that we use. It's Cascade with Dawn, or um, I was thinking the laundry detergent. You see that in where it's uh, like an example is Tide featuring OxyClean. Um, I've also seen it uh, when I was traveling once, and we, my wife and I, stayed at a Radisson hotel, and in um, every bedroom there was a sleep number bed. And that was a part of a, a campaign that they had on TV that when you stay at a Radisson, you're going to get the same, you know, if you're a sleep number user, you're going to get the same quality night's sleep that you would in your own bed because we have the exact same one and you know your sleep number. Uh, there's also brand licensing, which allows uh, another company to use your brand name with a non-competing product. Um, I don't know why I'm gravitating towards food so much. I just uh, with branding, I just think there there's a lot um, a lot of good examples with that. But the example that I can think of is uh, Jack Daniels. Um, you see, uh, particularly with barbecue, um, Jack Daniels is in a lot of barbecue sauces, um, and you see even on uh, some major chains, there. Um, I, I think Applebee's maybe did that where they have their uh, their special menu of things made with Jack Daniels barbecue. So branding, if done correctly, can convey value. And that can translate directly into brand loyalty. Uh, types of brand loyalty is first uh, the lowest form, which is brand recognition, where that's uh, somebody's walking down the aisle, they see your product or they see your um, logo, and they, they know who you are. Um, then you have brand preference, which is stronger. And that's, um, to me, it's like, um, I'll you you know I like to use Nike balls, but I'll golf balls, but I will also use a Titleist golf ball. And then there is brand insistence, which is the strongest, and which is the one that you really hope for. And I think of that like um, I will absolutely not drink Coca Cola. I'm a Pepsi drinker. Um, brand value is often seen by a company as brand equity which essentially is the monetary value of a product or service within the marketplace. But, like everything else, branding can backfire. If your product or uh, service suddenly has a bad run, you might have some problems with your brand. Uh, that example that I've used in the past uh, of Amazon all of a sudden failing and uh, the issues that could happen with their image and uh, losing customers and all that. Uh, you might also deal with uh, federal law, uh, trademark and uh, copyright, and uh, I, I forgot what it is exactly. Um, I should have looked it up, but um, um, you can be forced to give up your name. Kleenex had an issue with that. Um, if you pay close attention to any Kleenex ad, um, whether it's print or um, uh, broadcast uh, or on the TV or radio, they always refer to their product as Kleenex brand tissues, and they are very careful about that because their product became synonymous, or their brand name came synonymous with their product. Like I was saying earlier, you ask for a Kleenex, most people don't ask for a tissue. So let's just dive into differentiation and positioning. Differentiation is what sets a product apart from its competitors, Pepsi versus Cola, PC versus Mac. Positioning is the image created about the product that our target market identifies. Um, ultimately, we're working through both to create a favorable view among our target market. We're trying to build that trust. Um, 
the book lays out a few things, the process to create a favorable relative position with your brand, and that is, uh, one is identifying the needs, wants, and preferences of the target market, evaluate, evaluating the competition, uh, their differentiation and positioning, comparing the current position um, that your company or product has against that of its competitors when meeting needs, wants, or preferences, identifying a product's differentiation and positioning not offered by the um, competition, uh, the, looking at the market, and reassessing. Um, there are some differentiation strategies that you can uh, that you can use. Let me grab a sip of water, as I have uh, discovered is my trademark line in these podcasts. Um, two ways that we can harness differentiation into our marketing is product descriptors, and that's the information about a product or service that makes it unique against the, comp com the its competition, and that's highlighting things like the features or advantages and benefits. And then the customer support, or what a firm provides beyond the product to add value. Um, an example of that is the 10-year or 100,000-mile GM powertrain warranty that you see on your cars. Um, and many other um, uh, automotive brands out there, they offer that type of, uh, that type of guarantee on their cars. Um, though I don't know many people who have actually uh, had that thing break down within the 10 years or 100,000 miles that was actually replaced, but it's just that little extra thing that uh, somebody like GM offers to um, entice you to buy their cars, but also feel that there's less risk involved in it. Um, with positioning strategies, um, you know, you're building that image that you want, that one that uh, uh, you want people to recognize right away when they think of your brand or feel when they think of your brand. Um, and that requires constant monitoring of your target market and their needs and wants against the perceptions of your products and services. Um, an example that I can think of with that is Kmart, um, RIP. Back when Kmart existed, um, it, uh, God, I, I think it, it was the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, they rebranded and became the Big K. Uh, because they wanted to get away from the um, being identified as a mart uh, because of Walmart. Um, and, you know, Target, that just never even bothered with mart in its name. But they tried that, and it didn't work out too well for them. Um, people just didn't accept it. They Nobody uh, started calling it, hey, I'm going to the Big K today. Do you need anything? It was, hey, I'm going to Kmart. It never, it just, it didn't work too well for them. Um, and Pretty quickly, they went back to being just Kmart. So um, next, I just want to get into managing brands over time. Uh, products and services have a life cycle, and that life cycle is influenced by many factors, such as shifts in the market, changes in customer demands, the availability of resources, and new technology. The home movie industry is a fine example of that. Back in the day when I was little, if you wanted to rent something, you went to Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, or the, the local video store. Now I we got Family Video, Blockbuster, and Hollywood Video don't exist anymore, and we have Netflix, uh, Amazon Prime, uh, Vudu, and um, a lot of cable companies now have their own version of um, uh, on-demand. Uh, when I was growing up, there used to be pay-per-view, and that, that doesn't exist anymore because cable companies um, 
shifted to their own on-demand services. So the life cycle stages, and I'll just go over them quickly, is first development, and that's uh, characterized by no sales revenue or and risk. Um, introduction, which is increasing customer awareness, uh, using capital on marketing and rapidly increasing your sales revenue. Um, growth is increasing the sales revenue, profits, market hold, and taking on competitors. Maturity is where your sales start to plateau. Um, shift to customer retention. Uh, marketing strategy aims at just uh, keeping your marketing share. And then your decline, where sales drop, you start to see customers go away. Uh, you have those last-ditch efforts to save the product. And uh, if you are fortunate enough, you can kind of have a controlled decline into ambiguity. Um, because brands have a life cycle, that means that your marketing strategy does too. Oftentimes, that translates to many marketing campaigns. Um, fine example of this, I think the best example of this um, is is of, of having many marketing campaigns is Geico. Um, they have, if you pay close enough attention, they typically have about three campaigns going on at the same time. Uh, when I was in IMC, um, and when I was, um, I think in strategic marketing, and we were talking about this, uh, Geico came up, and at the time they had, um, they had the Geico caveman thing going. Um, they had, uh, the the stack a hundred dollar the money with the eyes on it and it was always they played that uh, Michael Jackson and Rockwell song uh, I always feel like somebody's watching me and um, I forgot what the third one was but it was one of their really popular ones um, and Geico has done that to just kind of stay current and keep fresh and um, I don't know how their people do it and manage uh, three camp at least three campaigns at the same time uh, they're uh, their marketing efforts have even resulted in them, I believe it was last year, releasing a Greatest Hits album. And I don't think there's a single company that can say that they've done that. Um, lastly, I just want to touch on rebranding. Um, for a variety of reasons like age, life cycle of products, uh, competitors, new technologies, uh, firms may find themselves needing to rebrand. Rebranding is not simply changing a logo or color scheme, though that may be part of a rebranding effort. Rebranding requires an all-hands-on-deck approach, as you are working to change the perception of your product, service, or even firm holistically. Um, an example that I can think of um, is Nintendo. And when I was growing up, uh, when I was really little, uh, there was just the, the original Nintendo, the NES. And that was when I look back at the old ads for that, um, and I'm not just, I, I am a video game enthusiast, but, um, I actually did work in a video game store for a while. Um, so it's not like I just go back and look at old Nintendo ads, but, um, when I look back at those ads, uh, they were largely geared at kids, um, primarily, uh, pre-adolescent boys and adolescent boys. Um, Nintendo, it, their library for the original one was pretty extensive. Then with Super Nintendo and N64, they kind of started shifting into um, their brand as the one for um, young teenage boys primarily, um, just because I think the types of games that were coming out from third parties like Mortal Kombat, um, 
things like that. Things were kind of becoming a little bit more violent. N64, you were seeing it was just such a leap in the graphics and what uh, developers could do in a video game. Um, so you were seeing it more for like teenagers, um, you know, middle and high school boys, essentially. Then came the GameCube, and that's when I started working in a video game store. And what I noticed then is uh, when people were looking to buy a system, if they were a family, um, I would typically direct them to a GameCube because I noticed that uh, there were a lot more family-friendly games on the GameCube uh, against that of you know Xbox and uh, the PlayStation, which had a lot more violent games or um, games meant for uh, adults. And I think the GameCube was where Nintendo started dabbling in we can be a family system and have the family-friendly games. Um, after that, um, there was the Nintendo Wii, which was a huge revolution uh, in video gaming, because partially because of the technology, but I would say because Nintendo was actually able to make that true family system. You know, even grandma and grandpa could participate in Wii Bowling and play video games just like the rest of us and have a great time. And since then, Nintendo has really worked to maintain itself as that family uh, brand. And I don't think that it was necessarily that Nintendo uh, went into all this, uh, particularly with the Wii, looking to rebrand itself as the family. I think that as the family system, I think it kind of happened a little organically and um, also because of the technology. But since then, that's what Nintendo has uh, really hedged its bets on is being that family system, the brand that when you hear Nintendo, you think, okay, Mario and Donkey Kong and Zelda, and oh, those are good games, and we can play those, and oh yeah, there was that bowling game, and um, even the Switch, which some of you might have um, now, and um, they maintain that, where we are a family system, and we're for everybody, and we're, we're now also portable, and we also throw in two controllers with the system, so you can, so you can play together. Um, so to go back to the beginning of my talk, um, I mentioned that I would just talk about the rebranding that I did, brand development and rebranding. Um, I believe I talked about this in one of our earlier podcasts, but at work, um, when I was hired um, to work at the Chamber and OBD, one of the initial job duties that I had uh, was for OBD, since it was brand new, to develop a brand, help develop the brand. Um, it wasn't just picking out a new a logo. That had already been done. For us, it was uh, creating um, consistency with all of the materials that we produced. Um, and that was color scheme. That was look. That was kerning of the text, if you know what that is. Um, it was also the voice of OBD, how we sounded, the words that we used, the language that we used. And... Um, uh, you know, ultimately, that all contributed to the messaging that we had. Uh, that when you saw OBD, when you saw the logo, this is what you thought of. Um, this is how you thought of us. This is what you saw us doing and what we were part of. Um, after that was established, and I and I actually worked with my friend Tim on that. Uh, that's kind of how I met him. Um, the next thing that I was part of was rebranding the Chamber of Commerce. And the Chamber has been around for, I think, 115 years, or it's coming up on that. So it is a very, very, very well-established organization in uh, in this area. 
and in Western New York. It's actually one of the biggest chambers in Western New York. And if you look back through our archives, you see that the chambers had different logos. And um, But like I said, it's not just a logo. Um, when I came on board, the chamber's logo that they were using was about 20 years old, and we felt that it was time to rebrand. So uh, picking out a new logo and working with Tim to develop that, that was part of it. But it was also, like with OBD, creating that symphonic look um, and symphonic messaging across all of our materials that we produced. And it was trying to figure out our voice a little bit um, in that there was a lot going on in Olean with economic development and uh, revitalizing the community and the economy and our downtown. And the chamber was indeed part of that, but we wanted to be identified as progressive at the forefront, sitting at the table, helping make these decisions, um, looking to our future, looking to bring new businesses in here and serve the business community to help them uh, navigate the new economy that we were trying to build. Um, it was a really interesting process to go through that and to, to develop these similar but unique voices and um, one, spark a perception in the community of OBD, but to change the perception of the community of the chamber. Uh, not that the community had any bad perception of the chamber, but we wanted them to think of the chamber in a new way. Um, so with that, I'm going to wrap it up here for this week's podcast. I guess this was about as long as my normal ones. Um, as I mentioned at the very beginning, uh, talk with Tim is this week, so I'm really looking forward to that with you guys. And uh, I will see you guys uh, next week in the podcast. So have a good week, and uh, we'll talk later.